Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's segment of the Contours podcast, hosted by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. I'm Nick Harris, the Senior Analyst and Program Head for Authoritarianism at the New Lines Institute. Today, we'll be discussing what could become a big crisis in Ukraine, which would be the first huge test of the Biden administration's policy on Europe and NATO. Of course, the crisis in Ukraine has been simmering for the better part of a decade now, since 2014, with the Ukrainian government locked into a conflict with Russian-backed separatist forces that have seized large areas of Ukraine's eastern and Russian bordering Donbass region. Russia has also militarily occupied and annexed the Crimea region on the Black Sea from Ukraine, while the Donbass conflict erupted in 2014. The so-called Donbass War has seen multiple failed attempts by the international community, and especially Western European countries, to obtain a ceasefire that would end the fight in and create a mechanism to return Russian-backed separatist-controlled areas of the Donbass back into Ukraine. The United States maintains a small forward-deployed military presence in Western Ukraine reportedly no more than 300 U.S. troops, to train and build the capacity of the Ukrainian armed forces to resist further Russian-backed separatist campaigns. The U.S. has also provided lethal assistance in the form of weapons, including the advanced Javelin anti-tank missile system, to give the Ukrainian government a more level playing field in its conflict against Russian-backed separatist and Russian forces in the Donbass region. While the U.S. presence in Ukraine is small, a renewed Russian-backed military campaign in the Donbass region would impact the more than 72,000 U.S. military personnel who are deployed in Europe. It would also be an enormous stress test on the Biden team's ability to initiate a European and NATO counter to Russian military activities in Europe and in Europe's near abroad. Where things stand now is dangerous. The most recent internationally backed ceasefire that was struck in July 2020, which had been previously broken, but not to the sheer amount that it has been over the recent weeks, is seemingly in tatters as the Russian-backed separatist forces and Ukrainian government forces have re-engaged in persistent fighting in the Donbass region. Further, over the last week, the Russian military has moved forces, including reportedly combat brigades, artillery, armor, and logistical units from different parts of Russia to within close proximity of the Russian border with the Donbass region. In response, the Ukrainian government has begun deploying additional military units, including heavy armor from Western Ukraine to government-controlled areas of the Donbass region. And the Ukrainian government has called on NATO, which Ukraine is not a member of, to begin conducting training exercise inside Ukraine, a move that has been a political red line for both Russia and Ukraine's Western European partners. These Russian moves have been concerning enough to the U.S. that President Joe Biden has spoken with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to reaffirm Biden's support for Ukraine. And senior Biden administration officials, including Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, have spoken urgently with the, gov the Ukrainian government counterparts in recent days. Also, the U.S. European Command, which is responsible for U.S. military activities in Europe, 
has reportedly raised its watch level to the highest potential imminent crisis and America's Western European and NATO allies seem prepared for the worst in Ukraine. To discuss this unfolding situation in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, I'm joined today by three top-rate analysts who work with the New Lines Institute, Caroline Rose, Eugene Chelsovsky, and Jeff Hahn, to discuss the local, regional, and geopolitical dynamics of this crisis in Eastern Europe and to forecast the potential consequences of a new Russian campaign in Ukraine. Caroline Rose is a senior analyst at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. She's a foreign policy specialist on the Middle East and Europe. Caroline is also the head for Strategic Vacuums Program at the New Lines Institute, which produces work on the geopolitical effects of contested territories, ungoverned spaces, and government deficits of interest to U.S. national security and strategy. Eugene Tosky is a non-resident fellow with the New Lines Institute. His work focuses on the political, economic, and security issues pertaining to Russia, Eurasia, and the Middle East. And last but not least, Jeff Hahn is an independent geopolitical risk consultant based in London. He has published extensively on U.S.-Russian relations and the evolution of Russian domestic and foreign policy. Jeff is also a Ph.D. candidate at the London School of Economics in its Department of International History, where his research focuses on the emergence of the post-Cold War order. Caroline, Jeff, and Eugene, thank you for joining us today. Okay, Jeff, I'd like to start off with you. Why is the seaman Russian military escalation happening now? Hi, Nick. Thank you for having me today. There's likely a variety of reasons we are currently witnessing these Russian troop movements. Some of them are very practical. Others are very political. If we start with the practical, this is part of a broader shift in Russia's military force posturing and Russia's military reform. The units we're witnessing moving are likely part of elements of the southern and western military districts, specifically the 8th and 20th Combined Guards Armies, two formations that have been recently reactivated and are building out their combat capabilities. It is also a time in spring where the weather has turned favorable to conducting large-scale exercises. Now, the choice to conduct these large-scale exercises when negotiations have stalled with Ukraine likely gets into the political aspect of these movements. It's meant to illustrate to Ukraine that Russia is still highly militarily capable and potentially capable of inflicting serious damage on it if negotiations do not shift back to a favorable state. That said, though, Russia's position in Ukraine illustrates both its strength and its inherent weakness. They're not actively losing the situation, but they're not actively winning either. They're essentially stuck in a strategic quagmire. At this time, I don't see any strong evidence that renewed conflict is likely. Although there have been renewed skirmishes along the line of contact, we have not seen several indicators that would point towards a resumption of open hostilities. Though there have been movements on the Ukrainian border, there have been no movements of troops that we have been able to find within Ukrainian territory. There has been increased fighting between separatists and Ukrainian forces, but those units have mainly remained in their position. There's been no attempt by the separatists to launch renewed offensives. 
And we have also not seen targeting of mid-level Ukrainian command and control, which was something that happened in advance of previous escalations. What is concerning about this, especially for the Biden administration, is these troop movements are part of the larger shift in Russia's military posture towards the potential resumption of peer-to-peer -peer military conflict in Europe. And that is something that in the long term has serious potential implications. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate that detailed examination of the indicators that we would need to look for in order to assess the, the extent to which Russia might be serious, but actually carrying off a military campaign in Ukraine. Caroline and Eugene, I'd like to ask you, you know, wh what is the uh, impact that this potential crisis could have on Eastern Europe and especially sort of the U.S. approach to Eastern Europe and stability in this region. Uh, Eugene? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, so I think before looking at the broader impact on Eastern Europe, we have to keep a few things in mind and a few things in context uh, as it pertains to Ukraine. So, I mean, as Jeff mentioned, this, uh, this conflict is nothing new. Um, we've been seeing this happen for the past, you know, better part of a decade. Um, and I think that the recent uh, ceasefire violations, while they are stronger um, in recent weeks than they have been, you know, for probably a, a, about a year or so, I mean, ceasefire breakdowns have been a persistent part of the conflict between uh, Ukraine and Russia. And I think that's not a coincidence. I mean, when they uh, first struck the, the Minsk Protocol, which was essentially the, um, the peace agreement uh, between um, Ukraine and Russian-backed separatist forces, that never really got off the ground because there are some fundamental features that are in conflict. From the Ukrainian perspective, they want to reestablish their control of territory in eastern Ukraine. Now, Russia views this conflict as an internal civil war of sorts between Ukraine and the separatists, whereas Ukraine and the West view it as a, you know, a Russian act of aggression and the separatists are merely just proxies for Russia. So when they strike an agreement, there's still a different interpretation of the conflict itself and how to resolve the conflict. So when we get into aspects of the Minsk protocols, uh, which have everything to do with you know, both security and political components in terms of granting more um, you know, control or granting more uh, um, autonomy uh, to the separatist territories in exchange for some security concessions, uh, like the restoration of the border, none of these can actually be reached until a ceasefire is in place, which, as I mentioned, has been broken several times. So this is essentially a long-term, you know, frozen, simmering conflict of sorts between uh, Ukraine and Russia that probably is not going to be resolved anytime soon. Having said that, I don't see a major uh, military escalation happening or a military invasion on the part of Russia because it prefers to leave that in the gray zone and, and leave the separatists the ones to do to serve Russia's interests. Um, and I think, you know, to your original question, that, that applies to a lot of different um, conflicts in the post-Soviet space, whether we're talking about uh, the, you know, the conflict in Georgia, even Nagorno-Karabakh, which we've seen escalate recently, and then throughout Eastern Europe with, you know, the Baltic states being, you know, contested between Russia on one hand and NATO on the other and seeing military buildup. So I think what this does is raise the potential for 
some miscalculations. You can never rule out completely some kind of accident or tripwire that, that you know, causes a bigger conflict. But essentially, this is a, a longer-term geopolitical tussle that will probably stay within this gray area. Yeah, just to, to piggyback off of Eugene, Eugene, I think you made a really great point here in that this isn't entirely a sign of any kind of imminent offensive. Although I think that the memory of Georgia is hanging uh, very prevalently over the, uh, over the European community and over the West and the United States. That being said, this isn't saber-rattling either. I think this is Russia trying to recalibrate some of the balance of power in the security landscape along the Russian-Ukrainian border. And by sending nearly 4,000 personnel to the border, including a lot of uh, heavy armored equipment and artillery units, this does signal that Russia is trying to reassert some of the some of its control along the border region. And on top of that, it's also a message, a clear message to the United States. And, you know, Nick, you mentioned that this is going to be a stress test for the Biden administration. That is absolutely correct, particularly as Biden reassesses his European strategy. And this is very important. There have been mixed messages with the Biden administration as to how they're going to react to uh, European defense spending, how they're going to uh, recalibrate its strategy, particularly in the Eastern European periphery, what they're how they're going to interact with Polish forces, with Estonia, with Latvia, while, of course, balancing out their relationship with Germany. And I think Russia recognized that there are some fractures that still exist in the U.S.-European relationship. And, you know, of course, with the U.S.'s larger transatlantic strategy and Russia is capitalizing on that. They are recognizing that, you know, this is this is in the early days of the Biden administration. There is a wish to, of course, increase its rotational presence in Eastern Europe, but they haven't acted on it yet and they haven't necessarily drawn up the plans to enact this. So this is the perfect time to try and change the balance of power in Ukraine and along the border region. I'd just like to comment on what Caroline and Eugene have said in regards to uh, the 2008 Georgia War, or the August War as it's sometimes called. That was a good example of a frozen conflict which Russia had been managing uh, for the better part of a decade and a half, uh, perhaps longer, that rapidly spiraled into an all-out shooting war uh, due to a variety of mis miscalculations and mistakes by both sides. And while these current troop movements are not indicative of a potential Russian offensive, we should not kid ourselves in thinking that they will do anything to ease tensions or de-escalate the situation. Indeed, moving more forces into close proximity raises the risk of escalation by one side or the other in the very near future and raises the real potential of a full-scale state-on-state conflict in Europe, something that hasn't happened to really for uh, decades. So well, we do need to be aware of that to possibility. And we should note that the, on the Ukrainian side, these escalations are an opportunity to further entrench support in Western capitals and to push their case for eventual integration into NATO, something that they have been making great strides towards. And they have been reforming and preparing their military as part of a long-term strategy to better defend the remaining territory against Russia.
Thank you very much, Eugene, Caroline, and Jeff. That was an excellent examination of not only sort of sort of how we could see Russia's campaign potentially unfolding, but also to begin to get at some of the second and third order effects that this cri a renewed crisis in Ukraine could have on Europe and on NATO. You know, I want to build on this discussion a little bit, Jeff. You recently published an analysis with the New Lines Institute where you examined in depth you know, Russia's global military strategy. You created some very interesting categories to describe how Russia approaches uh, its military campaigns in different world theaters. So I want to ask you to build on your work for New Lines. How would a Russian military escalation in the Ukraine or a crisis situation that extends for several months or the better part of this year, help fit into Russia's global military strategy. And then I wanna ask you related to that, how does a renewed conflict or crisis in the Donbass support Putin's goals, domestic and foreign? Well, Nick, in answer to your question, Ukraine is a very difficult quandary for Russia in its global military strategy. As I noted in my piece, Russia likes to act as a chronic disruptor to US global and Western global interest, but it also likes to maintain a high degree of flexibility so as not to get trapped in a strategic quagmire. I think the Russian military's experience from Afghanistan really informs this, where it's essentially getting stuck in the strategic mud. You're not making progress and you lose room to maneuver. Ukraine like I said earlier, is a good example of Russia not losing a conflict, but it's also not winning it either. It's essentially stuck. It can't withdraw its support from Donbass, and it can't withdraw from Crimea without to seriously losing face. There's a strong argument to be made that the 2014 seizure of those territories was a overreaction on Russia's part and a strategic miscalculation. Because while they did secure their interest of the Black Sea Fleet and they did help support those separatist regions, thus uh, disrupting Ukraine's ability to rapidly integrate into Western structures such as NATO or the EU, the cost, especially in the long term, has been very high. Russia's essentially been cut off from the Western systems and Round after round of sanctions only reinforced that. The Russian economy was growing very, uh, very strongly before tw 2014, but since then it has remained in a stagnant state. So as far as from a domestic perspective, though, uh, Putin, it's in Putin's interest to maintain control of Crimea for a variety of reasons. There's the historic aspects of it. There's the strategic aspects as home of the Black Sea Fleet and Russia's traditional gateway to uh, the Mediterranean and to the open seas. There's also just the fact that building a new Black Sea fleet base somewhere in the Caucasus would be extremely expensive and time consuming. So there's the practical considerations. I would say though that they would prefer that this conflict be resolved in some manner that would allow them an honorable peace, but I don't see a roadmap out of that that would uh, be satisfactory to all parties. Ukraine will continue to want the return of its territory. The United States will continue to want Russia to respect international protocols and precedent that territorial borders should not change. 
But Russia also doesn't want to give up Crimea or abandon its friends in the Donbass because that could significantly undermine its uh, interventions elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I would just follow up on something that Jeff mentioned, which I thought was a really good point in terms of framing Russia's thinking. You know, Jeff brought up the, the war in Afghanistan still during the Soviet era and how that really bogged Russia down, sapped resources. You know, it was an overstretch and it was one of, you could argue, a key factor in the collapse of the Soviet Union, amongst other things. I think Putin has learned from interventions like that. And so when we look at a case like Ukraine or really any Russian military intervention that it's, that it's undertaken um, in the Putin era, whether it's you know, Georgia, even Syria, Putin is very mindful of the limitations of Russia. And so when we look at Ukraine, I don't think Russia's goal is to invade Ukraine, which is why I don't really take very seriously the, the assertions from some that you know, Russia is about to launch this large-scale invasion with its troops amassing on the border. I think ultimately Russia's goal is to pull Ukraine back into its orbit, um, which it lost following the Euromaidan revolution back in 2014. And that's a key reason why Russia made the moves that it did in Crimea and Donbass. But, you know, because Ukraine has kind of been very much, you know, Western oriented since then and, and is trying to integrate with institutions like the EU and NATO, ultimately what Russia is trying to do is kind of what Jeff said is disrupt you know, to undermine the, the pro-Western government in Ukraine, to make it as difficult as possible to pursue that integration, and to basically just bleed the Ukrainian state as, as long as it's necessary. So I think that, yes, it's true that, that Russia has not been successful in terms of flipping Ukraine or getting it back into its orbit, but I think that the costs to Russia are worth it for strategic reasons. It has the direct supply routes into eastern Ukraine. It doesn't cost that much to back up these separatist territories in Donbass, just the same as it is with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, you know, in Georgia. These are worthy costs for Russia in order to undermine these countries. But, you know, at the same time, Russia is wary of overstretch. Russia has, you know, suffered from sanctions. But these are all things that Putin calculates strategically. So. You know, when we look at what Russia is doing right now in Ukraine or what Russia could do in the future from Ukraine to, you know, throughout the European and Eurasian borderlands, I think we have to keep those kind of strategic interests in mind in terms of understanding what Russia is doing and what it could do in the future. Thank you very much, Jeff and Eugene. That's a very interesting assessment on Putin's goals and what Russia could achieve. Eugene, I want to actually follow up on some of the points that you've made here. As you know, the U.S. national defense strategy is quite concerned with this concept of a fait accompli, that U.S. great power rivals, in China and Russia in particular, but also regional rivals such as Iran in the Middle East and North Korea in East Asia, could force these fait accompli on the U.S. or its partners and allies and essentially achieve the goals that our, our great power competitors want uh, without actually going into conflict. So I want to ask, to build off your point, Eugene, you know, what is a feasible fait accompli that Russia could force upon Ukraine as part of a renewed crisis? Uh, would that type of fait accompli also extend beyond the Donbass region, for example, into the Sea of Azov? 
And what type of effect could that have on Zelensky and the stability of the Ukrainian government? So I think Russia certainly has in the past and is, you could argue, currently trying to bait, you know, Ukraine into taking some kind of actions to undermine its own position, you know, and that does relate to uh, the U.S. factor as well. I mean, if we're looking from the U.S. perspective, certainly the U.S. has backed, provided, you know, backing to the to the Ukrainian government in recent years, whether that's political support, economic support, and even direct military support and things like lethal weapons. But ultimately, you know, the U.S. is only willing to go so far in supporting Ukraine. This is the reason why I don't think that Ukraine's accession into NATO, and you can throw in Georgia here as well, is going to happen anytime soon. Because essentially, you know, while these frozen conflicts or not so frozen conflicts are simmering, that would pretty much pull other NATO countries, including the U.S., into directly backing them militarily according to Article 5. Now, we don't know if that would actually happen, but that's, I think, the strategic thinking in terms of why there's been resistance or at least delays in in meaningful integration on those fronts. So ultimately, the U.S. sees Ukraine as part of its containment effort of Russia. It, It wants to support countries along Russia's periphery, from Ukraine to the Baltic states to the Caucasus. But ultimately, you know, the U.S. is still involved you know, heavily in the Middle East, although it's trying to extricate itself there. There is the, the case of a rising China. So, you know, these issues like Ukraine don't exactly top the U.S. agenda, although they are important. And, and this is something that Russia knows very well. Um, and this is something that Russia plays, you know, within a b- bigger strategic context. And so we can see Russia's involvement in Syria, for example, or even Russia's growing relationship with China there are direct Russian reasons for doing so that, that meet its interests, but it's also a, a means to gain leverage in the broader negotiation process with the U.S. Thank you very much, Eugene, for that nuanced uh, answer. And it is, it is interesting for us to look forward and to see you know, how Russia could benefit in Eastern Europe and to continue to try to play on a sort of reshuffling of U.S. defense priorities uh, globally as the Biden administration looks to pivot uh, away from the Middle East and in particular put a focus on Asia. Caroline, I want to build on this point of U.S. policy that Eugene raised and also sort of game out a little bit how the potential second and third order effects of a crisis in Ukraine Ukraine or Eastern Europe could impact how the U.S. approaches an important but still nascent policy on Europe and on NATO. From your point of view, what could be some of the second and third order effects of a crisis in Ukraine or Eastern Europe on the new administration's Europe and NATO policy? And, you know, I'd like to ask you point blank, should the Biden team die on the hill of back in Ukraine against Russia this early in its administration? Well, I I think I agree with uh, Eugene and and Jeff both in that Russia, there's no imminent and high stakes offensive uh, unfolding right now in in Ukraine. I think it's more so of a long term buildup 
along the periphery of Eastern Europe. And again, this this factors into Russia's behavior over the past year alone with the escalation that we saw with Belarus, some of the political dynamism that Russia tried to assert control over some of its, you know, former Soviet satellite states. This is about, and I think, you know, Eugene uh, touched upon this before, this is about Russia reclaiming its influence in this periphery. It's about it uh, turning back its attention towards Eastern Europe, recognizing some of the limitations it had in the Middle East, it had uh, with mercenaries in Libya, it had with Syria, and re refocusing uh, its efforts there. And so in terms of the aftershocks with the United States and NATO, I think you're going to see a far more hawkish Eastern European lobby with, with the United States. You're going to see Poland lobbying for more uh, defensive support, going to see uh, Estonia, Latvia, all of the countries that are on Russia's doorstep uh, trying to get the United States to lend uh, a better hand at trying to defend its borders and its sovereignty from Russian encroachment. And at the same time, I think you're going to see the United States take its European defense strategy a bit more, I don't want to necessarily say seriously, but I think it's going to become uh, one of the top agenda items. Now, of course, you know, Nick, you mentioned that the United States, it's, it's looking to increase its efforts with the national uh, security strategy, with the um, national defense strategy, the 2018 NDS. And it is, and it's slowly trying to incrementally withdraw from the Middle East region. But I think this is also going to put the pressure on the U.S. increasing its rotational presence, particularly in Poland. During the Trump administration, there was a big controversy of whether the United States would build a permanent base there or whether it would change some of its rotational presence closer to the Belarus border. And I think that this will raise that question again in the Biden administration, potentially. Uh, I also think that it is going to convince the United States to watch other blind spots in Eastern Europe as well. I think that Belarus is also going to be a, a country to watch here. I think that as a client state of Russia, uh, it is quite possible that Russian forces and Russian influence through Belarus will also apply pressure not only to Ukraine, but also to U.S. allies in Eastern Europe. So I think that the U.S. is going to try and look at, at, that, at this from a bird's eye view. It's going to reassess some of its rotational presence. It is going to continue building on an agile force uh, around cavalry brigades and heavy uh, conventional forces. And I, I think that that is going to really convince the U.S. to double down on some of these efforts. Now, whether the U.S. is going to die on the hill of Ukraine, certainly Ukraine, I think, is more of an existential question for Russia rather than it is for the United States. But it certainly is a key that unlocks a lot of the security landscape questions within Eastern Europe. And it is a top priority, not only to the United States, but also, of course, to the EU and to the NATO alliance. So I think that the U.S. is, you know, the U.S. is going to take this very seriously. If there is escalation, I don't think that the U.S. would necessarily try and it, it engage on a parallel level. I don't think that we're going to necessarily see the U.S. become very hawkish over Ukraine, but I think the U.S. is going to try and pinpoint different pressure spots that can convince Russia to, of course, de-escalate and to reconsider some of the moves that it is making along the Russian-Ukrainian border. I think Caroline's made some excellent points there, especially on U.S. force posture. 
I would just add that in the long term, U.S. relations with Russia have oscillated between three points, coexistence, confrontation, or cooperation. And it's usually somewhere between two of those, but rarely between all three. And since 2014, we have definitely seen a sharp shift towards confrontation. So the Biden administration really is just building on what has happened before. And it needs to make a decision of whether it wants to continue down this path of confrontation or it wants to try to shift its relationship with Russia. And I don't currently see an opening for that. Certainly the Biden administration likely feels that it needs to protect Ukraine because not doing so uh, raises the risk of other U.S. allies growing very concerned with, with their own security in Europe. And I, I would just add, though, that on a macro scale, these Russian troop movements are somewhat alarming. They're part of a broader trend we've seen growing essentially over the last 10 years. We've seen, as Caroline was mentioning, we've seen an American military which has shifted its mindset from fighting non-state actors in rural areas like Iraq or Afghanistan towards once again fighting on the battlefields of Europe. And we've seen the U.S. increasing its drills and its force rotations in Europe. And we've also started to see European countries, which for decades after the Cold War consistently cut their defense spending, begin to increase it once again. And Russia has also expanded its joint military drills, specifically with China and with its Central Asian state partners. So the risk of peer-to-peer -peer military conflict once again seems to be a real possibility in the not too distant future. But unlike the Cold War, which was not that long ago, there seems to be much less concern about potential escalation from conventional to non-conventional conflict. And that's something I personally find very concerning. The Cold War worked or did not escalate because both sides wanted to avoid absolute escalation at all costs, although they came closer than we would all like to admit several times. So U.S.-Russia relations will be a very critical part of the 21st and even the next century of international affairs. And the Biden administration needs to make a decision of whether they want to continue to pursue a policy of aggressive confrontation or try to move back towards a state of mutual, perhaps mutual distrust and dislike, but mutual coexistence. No, thank you. And I, you know, Caroline, I really do agree with your points when you talk about some of the pressures um, that the Biden administration is going to have to think through when it looks at its policy towards Europe, NATO, and in Eastern Europe. And the point that you raise about Poland and how in the, during the Trump administration, Poland became this sort of nexus through which the U.S. policy debate and discussion on how a future U.S. force posture should be arranged in Europe uh, is, is well taken. And I think you raised that excellent point. And in fact, you could see it also play out in the congressional debate where you had different camps on Capitol Hill uh, trying to put different types of policy pressure on the then Trump administration. And we see it now in the early part of the Biden administration. And you know, how should the U.S., to orient itself in its policy on Europe and NATO. You know, is it useful for the U.S. to put an, an, a strong focus on the Ukraine, 
Or is it better for the U.S. to try to shore up that flank, that frontline posture in Poland and to shore up that flank on the Baltic Sea and let the Ukraine sort of play itself out? We even saw this in terms of sort of the chatter about how the Biden administration and the incumbent Biden team was trying to game out with European allies. You know, how should a effective U.S.-led European-powered global strategy to counter Russia's activities be designed? There's some very credible reporting that the U.S. wanted to focus very much on sort of a global messaging campaign and essentially to take a strong push in support of a global alliance of democracies versus authoritarian competitors. And European allies wanted to focus more on the down and dirty, in the mud, gritty details of situations in Eastern Europe that could flare up very quickly and could provide a very difficult a decision point for Western European countries on how to respond and whether they can collectively respond in the face of a quickly uh, moving and rapidly deteriorating crisis. So these are all excellent points. Well, I want to give each of you the opportunity now to offer us some final thoughts on this discussion. So I'd like to turn to Caroline first. And thank you, Caroline, again for very interesting assessment on how the U.S. can develop its approach. Of course. No, thank you. Thank you, Nick, for some great questions and some points to really think about. I do want to make a quick point about Poland before I move on to some of my final thoughts. I think Poland is where we're going to see a lot of U.S.-Russian contestation unfold. And we've, we started to see it a bit in the Trump administration, but I think the Biden administration, which has improved transatlantic ties, I think that we're going to see that really start to unfold in the next two to four years. Now, of course, the U.S. has already has, has started to increase its rotational presence in Poland, especially with short-term deployments you know, within Eastern and Central Poland. But the U.S. is also reviving Five Corps, which, uh, you know, it focuses on a very conventional cavalry brigade that can be rapidly deployed and it will conduct forward operations. And I think that speaks very much to the unfolding U.S. strategy of trying to return to a more conventional operational focus and increase its operational capacity in Europe. Now, right now, we've got a series of divergences with Europe that we really do need to start to patch up. Um, Nord Stream 2 is, of course, one of them with Germany. We also have some disagreements over defense spending and budgetary allocations and, you know, a proper political strategy, uh, you know, between the United States and Europe. But I think that this, I think that Russian encroachment in Eastern Europe and a potential escalation uh, along the Russian-Ukrainian border, I think that certainly will help unify some of these divisions within, you know, the European defense community, NATO and the United States. In terms of my final thoughts, I think that, you know, this is an important stress test for the Biden administration, but 
in some cases, there are opportunities that the Biden administration can capitalize on. This A, it helps them plan. It helps them, uh, you know, really find out where are the blind spots that exist in their Europe strategy. And I think it will quicken their response time, uh, especially when uh, designing a, a particular strategy with NATO and designing, you know, their, their defense strategy and a return to the 2018 NDS. I also think that this will help Europe as well, uh, you know, increase some of their defense spending, even in the wake of COVID-19, and uh, try and get on the same page with their Eastern European counterparts and the United States. So I think there are some windows of opportunities that the United States can can work on here. And also, like Eugene said, and, and Nick, you said, you mentioned this as well, uh, find spots of collaboration uh, with Russia, with trying to get them to the table. I don't necessarily think that this is, or at least in the short term, that Russia is going to try and return to any kind of peace format in Ukraine. But there are spaces for opportunity and spaces for cooperation with Russia that the U.S. really should try and, and return to in Europe and in the international order uh, more broadly. Yeah, I think Caroline makes some very great points. And I would just conclude by saying, you know, we can learn a lot about the Ukraine conflict by actually looking at another conflict in the former Soviet space in the form of Nagorno-Karabakh which we saw flare up into a major you know, military confrontation last year, and it's still ongoing in some form, although it has become more peaceful. But I think what that showed is that these so-called frozen conflicts in the former Soviet space are never truly frozen. So with Ukraine, this is something that has been kind of on the back burner, has been very low level over in recent years, but it never truly ended. And, and that now we're seeing this, you know, these ceasefire violations and, you know, potential escalation flare up. So I think that shows that these conflicts are always in play to some degree. Another point related to Nagorno-Karabakh is that Russia's ultimate interest and concern in these territories is to try to entrench its own influence and prevent you know, the influence of other powers or other players. In Ukraine, it's, it's the US, it's NATO, it's the EU. In Nagorno-Karabakh, we saw the emergence um, of, of an important player there, which was Turkey. Um, now, Turkey and Azerbaijan have long had a strategic relationship. They've long been allies, but Turkey's role was largely rhetorical. But what we saw over the course of the last year is that that support for Azerbaijan increased substantially, everything from drones to even allegedly facilitating mercenaries from Syria into the conflict. And that was a huge in tipping the scales towards Azerbaijan and against Armenia, which has a Russian military presence. And while Russia ended up coming out pretty good in the conflict, it was able to deploy 2,000 peacekeepers, it solidified its presence, it really had to factor in the presence, the growing presence of Turkey there. And so this, I think, points to the longer term concerns of Russia because of its demographic outlook and its economic outlook is not great in the long term, you know, Russia is trying to really solidify its presence in these territories right now. But ultimately, Russia faces an uphill struggle, you know, in, in that longer term. So what I think that means is that it, whether it's in Ukraine or Nagorno-Karabakh or any number of these former Soviet periphery territories, these regions can be expected to become quite dynamic um, in the coming months and years.
I would just close by saying that I think Eugene and Caroline have both made valid points, and I think maybe we should change the vocabulary we're using. Rather than referring to these as frozen conflicts, we should think of them as simmering conflicts which risk boiling over at any point in the near future. And there's many of them, and they do seem to be proliferating along the Russian border. Viktor Chernomanin, the former Russian prime minister, famously said of the 1990s, we wanted the best, but it turned out like always. And it appears that in the long run, US and Russia are on a course for a 21st century, which will see them more as adversaries and less as the potential collaborators or even friends. So what, looking ahead, the peace in Europe that's lasted since the end of World War II looks doubtful, but hopefully it is something that the Biden and future administrations can continue to manage and contain and potentially bring Russia to the negotiating table and bring about a sustained peace that all sides can potentially live with. Well, thank you very much, Caroline, Eugene, and Jeff, for a detailed, nuanced, and timely discussion on a potentially large crisis that could erupt in Eastern Europe in the Donbass region of Ukraine. I want to thank everyone for listening today, and we will continue to maintain our sentinel stare on the situation in Donbass in Eastern Europe and in Russia's military activities in Eurasia. All the best.